Well, if you're just joining us, um, we as a community this fall have been going through the book of Genesis. And we're just going to be covering the first three chapters of Genesis uh, in the fall. And as I was laying some things out, it looks like uh, we might even, like, we'll, we'll break for Christmas and we might have to come back in the first of the year and, and, and wrap up chapter three. Even as this morning, as I was preparing for actually what it says in, in your bulletin that we're going to go down through verse 25, we're not actually, we're going to make it through verse uh, 22 this morning. Because uh, there's some things as I was preparing, I was going, this, I just, I, I want, I want to address this because I think it's so important. So next week, as we look at the text this morning, next week we're going to cover that they'll leave and the cleave and what it looks like to have intimacy in relationships, and specifically in this case, in a marriage relationship, but uh, in, in relationships in general. And so if you just join us, you know, we've been going through, we've been going through the, the Genesis, we've been talking about because beginnings matter. Where we have come from matters. You know, if, if we're on some sort of trajectory. We have a beginning, and there is a, there's a culmination of things. So we understand the scriptures teach, and so it's going where we came from and where we are going helps us tell us kind of where we're at. And so we've been looking at the beginnings. We've been looking at the beginning that is God. This is God's story. God's been telling the story. The story is about him. Uh, the, the scriptures are not man-centric or humanity-centric. Uh, your life is not about you. There's a grander story that's being told. And really kind of understanding the scriptures helps us plug our story into the larger story. And the truth is, we always want the story to be more than just about us. We want to be a part of something bigger. But I think a lot of times the tension in our life is that we want to be a part of something bigger, and yet we want it to be all about us. And God says, well, I'm going to give you one of those. The story's bigger than you. And you get to play a part. And so we've talked about creation, about how, how out of nothing God has created. There's a process in which you could have done that we've been talking about. Last week we talked about them in the garden. He had these two trees. They're going to come into play in a couple of weeks. This idea that there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And really that God said there's these two trees. You can eat freely of any other trees. There's just one tree you can eat from. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And not because God didn't want them to know about good and evil, but I think that the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, if they were to eat from that, was going to be a declaration of independence from God. It wasn't so much the fruit as it was the action of eating said fruit that would declare, God, I am independent of you and on my own. I am my own boss. I will make my own decisions and decide what is best for me. And God says, don't do that, because in the day that you do that, you are going to die. And that's where we kind of left it off last week. He said, there's these two trees, the tree of life. There's all these other trees. You can eat freely out of any of them. There's just one tree that you can eat from, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you do that, you are going to die. And this morning, we are going to embark on a, the more controversial part of Genesis. You thought, man, I thought we already hit the controversial part. We talked about creation. You know, we talked about this, this idea that there was this tree, but that the tree was, 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 would cause the fall, and he meant to cause the fall, and why did the tree even be there? But as we embark on, especially the next two weeks, is we're going to be talking about gender roles, and we're going to talk about marriage. And that's not controversial at all nowadays. Is it? Like, no, we, we don't, hear, I don't hear anything about those things nowadays. That's weird. Uh, we, we've, settled, we've settled the score on that. And what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you, we're going we're to pull apart. This is one of the reasons why we're going to take so long this morning is we're going to look at some the words and meaning words this morning because it's important. But what I would encourage you to do is to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. And, and I know that like, there's, there's some of us in this room that, that believe that the, the Bible is the inspired word of God, which I do. Um, that it is an error, which I do. But I know that there's people that, that don't. And I know that there's everything in between these places of, of wrestling. And what I would say, and this is what I've done in my, even as, as, a, as, a, as what I think is a mature Christian, even as a mature Christian, I'll still say, I, I give you the benefit of the doubt. Your word has been around for 3,500 years, the Old Testament, 2,000 years, the New Testament. It has been studied, it has been researched, it has been pulled apart and put back together again. It has been scrutinized by people much smarter than me. And in the places where I disagree with it, I give it the benefit of the doubt. Because I think there's something else where it says, well, I don't believe it unless I can see it. And I think that, that's, that's good. But I, what I would say is that this Bible, this, this word has been around for a very long time. And even as it's going to maybe say some controversial things into our culture right now, is that, is that I would say we need to give it the benefit of the doubt. Now, with that, I feel like whenever I preach a sermon on, on, on something, one, that's controversial, or two, or at least a well-known text, is that we come with all this baggage. And, and I, I feel like when, when it happens, I spend a lot of the time saying, well, I'm not saying this. Let's just take that package off. Let's take this package off. And what I would say like this morning, what I said originally about Genesis, we're going to let Genesis speak to what Genesis speaks to. It will have implications, and it's going to have different implications for you than it will for me, and it will have different implications for the person next to you. But what we want to know is what does God's word say? And so with that, we will look at it. You've got your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him, fit for him. Some of your translations will say suitable for him. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so if we were reading Genesis 1 and 2, and if we were just reading them straight through, we would hear this really stark contrast. Because what has God, what, what has it been saying up until this point? God said it. It was so. He saw that it was good. God, God said it. It was so. God saw that it was good. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. It was good. It was good. It was good. And here we get in verse 18. 
Galic down goes, it's not good. Now, we would assume, if all we were going to say is that there comes a point when there's going to be, God's going to say it's not good, we would think, oh, that happens after the fall, right? Eve eats of the fruit, Adam eats of the fruit, and then God says, that's not good, not good. I created this good creation, I turned the keys over to you at some level, and now what you have done is not good. But that's not the first time we hear about something being not good. Verse 18, God looks down at humanity, looks down at Adam, and says, it's not good. And the question is, it's not good for what? It's not good for man to be alone. The indication here is that Adam has been created. Eve has yet to be created. God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that you're alone. Now, this raises a lot of questions for me. Maybe not for you, that's for me. But wait a minute. It's not alone. It's got all the animals, right? I mean, some of you guys got animals in your house. You're like, I'm not alone. I got, I got pets. I got animals. I'm not alone. But more than that, he's got God. It's interesting that God would look down at Adam after he's created Adam and say, it's not good for a man to be alone. But didn't you create Adam to be in relationship with him? And I'd say, yes, that's true. God did create Adam to be in relationship with God. Then how do we get to this point that he says he's not good for him to be alone? God's there. Is God not enough? There's two conclusions that we cannot draw. And the first is that there's some sort of deficiency in God, right? That God created Adam. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy's way too much for me. Like, he's, he's way too much. I'm deficient. I can't give him everything that he needs. We cannot draw that conclusion as if there's some sort of deficiency in God that would, that would cause Adam in this alone state. The second conclusion we cannot draw is that somehow Adam is deficient in his created state. So it can't be that, that God created Adam, and as Adam is then created, as we saw, he formed him out of the dirt, he breathed into his nostrils, and then he became a living creature, is what the word tells us. We can't say that in that, that Adam is deficient some way. The guy's like, oh, wow, man, I really messed up. I, mean, I, meant to, I meant to make him more, but I didn't make him as more. And now that I see him and interacting, I realize he's alone. We can't draw either one of those conclusions. And so what can we draw from this? Because I think that Adam, I think Adam in his created state was all that God wanted Adam to be. That's what God does. And so what can we draw from this? Well, what it tells me is that in creating, creating Adam in his image, because that's what we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, right? He created Adam and Eve in his image. That in creating Adam in his image, that God has created Adam for relationship. It's interesting that we, you know, we, we follow what we say is this triune God. It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That within them they have perfect unity, experience perfect community and relationship. And then he says, I'm going to create in my image. And then what he does is create in an image, an image that actually is, is made for relationship, made for community. And so when Adam is created, that all is Adam to be. And even though God is there and neither one is deficient, God says it's not good for man to be alone. That God's created us for being in relationship. It's interesting because uh, every now and then I'll come across somebody and they'll, they'll, they'll talk about faith and about God. And they'll, they'll, be, they'll be a Christian. They say, oh, you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Like, oh, that's great. Where do, you, where, do you go to, uh, where do you go to church at? They go, oh, I don't. I don't go to church. You don't go to church? Like, no, no, I don't, I don't need man to tell me about my relationship with God. You know, I don't need somebody else and anyone to tell me about it. It's just between me and God. Like, well, what about the other people? Like, no, it's just about me and God. I'm like, well, okay, but here's the problem. I'd actually point you not even to like places where, where, where it says basically don't, don't forget going to church. I would point you to places place of Genesis 2 where it says actually, but you're not created to be alone. You're created. This whole faith thing is created to be done in community. One of the reasons why we gather is because God has called us to gather. Why? Because we're not supposed to be alone. That we're supposed to be doing life in community. Some of the early uh, church fathers, the ones who started the monastic movement, it just means that they, they were monks. Um, one of the things they would do is they would, they would come to faith and then want to become a monk until they go out into the desert and they would pursue God. Some people are just going to go out to the desert, get rid of all of my surroundings, all of these pesky people, and I just want to be about me and about God. And they would go out there for a while and they'd have great connections, but a lot of the early church fathers, they, a lot of they, they came back and actually started to serve the church and do wonderful things for the church. And part of one of the things that they realized out in the desert was that it's not good for a man to be alone. This journey, this faith journey, is not just about just me. I've been created for community. I've been created to be in relationship. By the way, there's a connection between isolation and depression, right? Certainly depression is only cause, it's not isolation. But I know a lot of people who, who are depressed and feel isolated. And part of me would say, yeah, yeah, because you're not created to be alone. You're never created to be alone. And when, you iso- when you're isolated and you feel alone, this aloneness, there's something in you that says it's not supposed to be this way. And I would say, you're right. Genesis 2 tells us you're right. And so he says it's not good for man to be alone. And what I want to clear up in Genesis 2 is that it's not saying that everybody should be married, which is actually kind of how we think about it in the church sometimes. 
when people go, oh, I think Christian, they should be married. Yeah, so who is another good Christian I gotta connect them with? Hmm, I've got two good Christians that are married. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta get them because it's not good for me to be alone. And so now they've gotta be, they've gotta be married. I don't think that's what Genesis 2 is not necessarily saying that everybody needs to be married. I think if that's what it was saying, it would go against other places and teachings of the Bible. But that's also to be saying is that unless you're married, you'll be alone. Or that, that somehow, like, yeah, like, like, sometimes people get married so that they're not gonna be alone. But actually, Jesus says some crazy things about marriage. You know, he says, you know, he gives some teachings and somebody says, maybe it's better that we're not. And he goes, yeah, well, you said it, not me. So it's not just that, that everybody's supposed to be married, but what I think this is getting at is not good for me to be alone. There is a difference. And by the way, just FYI, um, I, know, I know people that are married and that feel alone. And maybe that's you. And so it's not just the cure. The, the, the issue is much larger than that. The issue is that man's not to be created to be alone. And so God looks down and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. And what does he say? I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God does what God does, which is he sees an issue. It's not good. and says, I'm going to address said issue. And he says, I'm going to make for him a helper. A helper who is fit for him. Or some of your translations will say, suitable for him. Now, this is the place where it gets a bit controversial. Because it's like, what a, what do you just call Eve? A helper? I'm going to make a helper? That's what Eve is? Especially right now as we, we wrestle with gender equality and we hear things like, Eve is a helper. There's something that may rise up and say, well, that's not, that's not good. That's not accurate. You know, well, part of it, I think we have to understand what helper means. I think when we hear helper in our context, what we think is subordinate, we actually even say something like, they're the help. They're less than. They're servants. Maybe in a, uh, in a corporate world, they're, they're, they're the assistant. But the problem is, is that's actually not what the Bible's referring to. It's interesting, this idea of help in the Bible, helper. This word's actually only used 16 times, two of which are in direct relation to Eve. Then there's 14 other times, two of the other times, it's in reference to, you're not going to get help. So help is something that's not going to come. But the other, the other 12 times that it's used, do you know what it's in reference to? It's in reference to God. Psalm 121. I look to the, I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you. Maker of the heavens and the earth. The, like, almost exclusively, the other times that this word is used, it's in reference to God helping, God being the helper of humanity. And that's in Hebrew and in, in, in Greek. When Jesus goes to the cross, the night that he goes to the cross, he says, I have to go, I have to leave. And in my leaving, I'm going to send you somebody. And what does he say? I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, we certainly cannot understand this idea to be one of an inferior, inferior role, a subordinate, a less than, a servant, if the word is going to be used in, in greatest relation to God. And so, this word, helper, is not one of less than, but actually, in, in reference to God, it's, a, it's the superior position. And so then I think the next question is, in what way was Eve needing to be helping? Right? So what does that mean? I think it's just like Adam was lonely. Adam was lonely. And so then Eve's main way for her to help is to make sure Adam is no longer lonely. And I think, unfortunately, this has been used in, in, in very, very horrible ways. But you think back to about this idea of how help is used in the rest of the Bible. When it says, I look to the, I look to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. Is it in reference to loneliness? It's actually not. When Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper, is, is, what, he is what Jesus is saying is going, so I'm going to leave, you're going to be sad and lonely, and then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, a helper, to make sure you're not lonely anymore. Is that what's happening? That's not what's happening in one of those cases. So what's happening in those cases, well, I think both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that when the helper comes, the helper helps the person achieve the will of God to the glory of God. The helper comes along to help to achieve the will of God to the glory of God. That's, that's how we see it used in the Old Testament, and that's certainly how we see it used in the New Testament. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? The Holy Spirit's going to come along and help you achieve the will of God, the moving forward of the church to the glory of God. That's why people use this, this verse in Genesis to say that Eve's, Eve's job as the helper is to fulfill the needs and the wants and the desires of Adam. I go, you don't know what it's talking about in reference to helper. In reference to helper and in reference to like how, how she's going to help. 
Because it's not about fulfilling Adam's needs and desires and wants. God says, I want you to achieve the will of God to the glory of God. And by the way, Adam, you can't do that by yourself. Because I've created you in my image, which means I've created you in community. I've asked you to till the soil, I've asked you to subdue the land. And I've asked you to be fruitful and multiply. You can't do that alone. It's not good for you to be alone. You can't do it alone. And so I'm going to create for you somebody to help you achieve the things I've laid out for you. Not your own will, not your own thing, not your own wants, not your own desires. But my desires, for my will, for my glory. And so God creates Eve. He says, so, so you can, if I've created you, Adam, your job right now is to bear my image. And he's going to help you in that by modeling relationship and community. I've created you, Adam, and I've asked you to, to subdue the land. And he's going to help you. He's going to help you till the soil, care for this creation. I've created you, Adam, and I've commanded you to be fruitful and you multiply. And he's going to help you. And if I have to explain that to you, you might want to ask your parents. <laughs> I probably should have to explain that part. But he's going to help you. Adam cannot do this on his own. And so, so he makes for him a suitable helper. Some of your translations will say a fit helper. Now, this is the fit word, the word that we get that we just translated for either fit or suitable. Interesting. Because sometimes it means um, uh, before, in the presence of, opposite, like a, like, a, like a wall. Like there's this wall and there's this wall. So it's kind of this wall's before, opposite of. And so it's a weird, it's a weird word. But I think, what the, I think what the idea is getting at is that, is that what I'm going to create is going to be this, this completion of the image. And not a completion, like a complete, like, so like Adam, like Eve's going to complete you. But not a complete, like in like a Jerry Maguire, Hallmark kind of way, right? But like a complete you in this complementary kind of way. There's things that you lack, Adam. And this Eve is going to be a fit helper, a, a suitable helper. She's going to complement you. And by complement, sometimes it means it's going to be things that you don't have or places in which you are the opposite. Now, there's this interesting thing about the opposites. Because in a weird way, opposites attract, right? We think about relationships, opposites attract. And that's not always true. And that's not like um, totally, it's not really totally true. Like they're opposite in everything. But it's actually true enough that it's actually what we would call maybe a truism, so that opposites do attract. The extrovert finds the introvert. I don't know how that happened. And by the way, the extrovert always finds the introvert. It's not the, <laughs> it's really does the introvert ever find the extrovert. It always goes, the extrovert finds the introvert. The planner finds somebody who's just spontaneous and plans nothing. The dreamer finds the pragmatist. The one who loves routine loves, finds the one who wants to change everything. And in the beginning of relationship, these two attract. And so in the beginnings of relationships, maybe dreamers will say, dreamers, I love him. I love him because my, you know, I've got these dreams and he actually helps me put, like, put feet to it. He challenges it in ways that helps, me, it helps it become a reality. And so I like that. And, and he, he keeps me grounded. I like that. I mean, the pragmatist would say, I, you know, I, I, I love her. I think she's great. I, I'm, I'm more like nuts and bolts kind of guy, but she's big vision. So there's some things that I have that are in me that she draws out of me. I, just, I make a mention of something. She's like, you can do this with it and do that with it. And before I'm, I know it, like this thing, is, it's, it's got feet to it. And now I'm challenged to do something that I would never got out of the before. And it's this beautiful thing. But here's the problem with the opposites. Is that opposites attract. But the problem is, is if they go long enough, they're unchecked, uncared for, and undervalued, they begin to repel. And so I've, the person with their head in the clouds, the pragmatist says, her head's always in the clouds. She's a dream, her head's always in the clouds. She comes up with these crazy, unrealistic ideas, and they frustrate me. She would just say something like, there's just no way that works. And she'll say, all right, I've got these dreams, and he's such a killjoy. Every time I say something, it's like, let me tell you the five reasons why that's not going to work. It just frustrates me to no end. The introvert, the extrovert, he always wants to be at the party. Like, we just can't, like, can we just have a night home? The extrovert, all she wants to do is stay home. She never wants to leave. See, what used to attract, what used to be complementary, now has, has repelled. And so I think that this is what happens. I think that we go from, I love that you're different from me, then to the, why can't you be more like me? And it's a slippery slope, and it happens over, over time. The relationship moves from a, a complementary partnership to a competitive rivalry. I think that's where, kind of where we are right now, culturally, is that, marriages and relationships in general have moved from this complementary partnership to this competitive rivalry. 
Do you feel like you're in competition with your spouse? Who makes more money? Who do the kids love more? Who's smarter? Who's got a better job? Who's better educated? Who works harder? Who's making more sacrifices? See, this competitive rivalry, what it does is it can destroy relationships, and, and God has not created us this way. I was thinking about thing this week about competitive rivalries and complementary partners. That competitive, competitive rivalry says, if you're good at it, I have to be good at it too, or better. But here's the problem with that, because it's a lose-lose situation. You know this, right? And this is probably not just a marriage, just any relationship. If you're good at it, I have to be good at it too, and hopefully probably better. Because what happens in that is, is, case one, you are better at that, and that creates arrogance and pride. Or two, you're not as good as that, and that creates despair and shame. I'm not as valuable because I can't do that. But this complementary partnership, what it says is, if you're good at it, great, I don't have to be. You get to do that. Like that that's your thing. That's your area. And now I don't have to. What it does is, and so I'm going to trust you with my, my dreams, my hopes, my wants. You know, because you're better at that than I am. And we complement each other very well in that way. And so in this area, I'm going to trust you. And so this idea of partnership versus rivalry. Here's the thing. If God wanted us to be competitive rivals, I think he would have just created a carbon copy of Adam. So Adam, iron shop and iron, right? And so I'm going to give you another example of you. And we're going to see. So you guys are both equal, both the same, exact carbon copies. And we're going to see which one's better. And we're going to let you challenge each other and go at it. We're going to see. But that's not how God created us. God created us to be in this, this sort of complementary partnership kind of relationships in marriages, and I think even in friendships as well. I, uh, I had a, a friend who was, uh, him and his wife were extreme opposites, especially in the, the planning area. He loved spontaneity. She loved planning. And both of them were like, why can't you just plan more? Why can't you just be more spontaneous? And really what's interesting is that for them for a trip is that to have it not planned, it would ruin the trip for her. To have it planned, it would ruin the trip for him. And so they were always, they were always like this. What do we do? She couldn't enjoy it. It wasn't planned. He couldn't enjoy it. It was planned. And, and originally in a relationship that drew them to one another in their marriage, it began to repel them. So what do you do? Their solution was they talked budget. And after budget, he talked about some things he would like to do. Like, oh, some things I would like, oh, some things I would like to do. Then she planned it. She would plan the whole two weeks. And then every day in the morning, like, so what are we doing today? She said, oh, today we're going rafting down the river. She's like, great, that is an amazing idea. What a, what a plan this is. And so this, this, the, 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 the spontaneity, the planning, and, and although they were opposite in this way, and they began to repel, they were able to find a way in which they, they valued that in each other. And it's interestingly enough, they both enjoyed the relationship and their vacations a lot more. You're not competitive rivals. You are complementary partners. And this is what God has created. That's verse 18. 19. All right, so <laughs> now you can see why. Two weeks. All right, 19. It goes on. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever he called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the fields. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so God brings all of the animals in front of Adam. And God says, I want you to name them. So Adam named them. And interesting, we see now that Adam has been created in the image of God, and he's starting to give Adam some like God-like responsibilities. If you name it, we're not, not going to let you do the uh, whole creating thing like that, but we are going to give you some naming. I think like a little kid. I'm not going to let you, like, I'll let you hold the nails. Like, you can do that. And uh, he says, but I don't let you name it. Whatever you name it, like, it is so. It is so. Giraffe, it is so. You know, hippopotamus, it is so. It is so. And so what God does is he parades, it's not like, almost like I know in the art, but he parades the animals in front of Adam says, name them. But in part, I think naming is part of the issue. I think the other thing is that God is bringing them so that we can come to the conclusion there is no animal that is fit for Adam. And by the way, once again, this is not for God's purposes. God's not bringing the animals and God thinking to himself, oh, no, that's not a fit. No, that's not a fit either. I, mean, I, thought, I thought I made one of these things that would be a fit, but no, no, they're not fit. So I just keep rolling through, rolling through. They got to the, they got to the zebra at the end because he's Z, right? They got to the zebra at the end. And it was like, well, now we're fresh out. What are we going to do? God already knows that in creation there is not a fit for him, but he brings all of them in front of him. And this idea that there's this conclusion at the end that there's not one fit for him. Who is that for? I, I think that's for Adam. I looked at all creation, by the way, dogs included, and there is no fit for me. Nothing that would compliment me. Nothing that would bring me the kind of relationship and community that I'm looking for. And so, so what does God do? God, do, God does what God does. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to the man. And so he takes it, and really the rib is can be literally translated as side. It's not literally translated as rib, it's, it's translated as side. Uh, the same word in another place in the Bible is used for the, the side of a building. But side, so we can translate it rib because that would make sense. Uh, but, but it's taken out of the side. And many commentaries have, and commentators have, have, have brought about the importance of didn't take it from his head to rule over man, did not take it from his foot so that man would be over woman, but took from his side. That's the sense of like equality. You are my side. You complete me in this complementary way. And I love this. Like, like the father of the bride, God brings Eve to Adam. It's interesting that, that people would use this verse to think that man is somehow greater than woman. And I know the argument, right, is that, well, woman, can, she, she came out of man. And so that makes, that makes Adam somehow a level greater. And well, first of all, it goes against all of the teachings of the Bible. Uh, second of all, I go, it's okay, it's, even, even if that was true, because, he, because, because Eve came from man, that makes man greater. Even if that was true, but how, what did Adam do? It's interesting that actually, Adam's not even the one who said that he was lonely or alone. Right? He didn't say that. He didn't say, God, I'm alone down here. None of these things fit me. You've got to do something about that. God's the one who identified that. They said, there's an issue. You're alone, and it's not good. Adam didn't even address the issue, know the issue. And then even of that, what did Adam do after that? Nothing. Like God caused him to fall asleep. God opened up his side. God took out the rib. God, from the rib, formed Eve, a woman. Interestingly enough, we have Eve as the only thing that has not been created from the ground, right? Is this where you're connected? As we're going to talk about next week, there's this loyalty, connection, intimacy that goes with this. And so it's not just like, there's just not just another creation, but this, this wholeness. And then God's the one that closed it up, and then God's the one who brought Eve into Adam. And I think in a really poetic way, that, that Adam, so from Adam, so from, from man, came woman, right? That's what it tells us, from, from man came woman, in a very poetic way, is that all other men for human history are going to come from women. It's like the circle of life. You can't even claim the superiority over it. One woman came from man, and then all other men are going to come from women. And so not a superiority, but an equality. And the circle of life has set it up, and so what do we do with this? These, these few verses. The first thing I want to do, and I'd be remiss to not address this before we go, is that, is that a spouse will not complete you. And I say that to the married people, and I say that to the single people. And here's the crazy thing, is that the married people know that more than the single people do. Because sometimes you can think, oh, if I just get married, that will solve it. The married people go, that's cute, that's cute, that's really, that's cute. That's cute. All, all it's going to do is amplify it. And so a spouse will not save you. A spouse does not complete you in the sense that Jesus completes you. A spouse is not the one to give you ultimately, ultimately right, ultimately to give you self-worth, to give you value, to give you meaning, to bring you joy. See, what happens sometimes is people get married and they expect their spouse to be their savior. And here's the problem. You've only got one savior. And he's a lot better than the guy or the woman that you married. And I think the most healthy, thriving relationships can come when two people have found each other or they are, they are united in marriage and both have healthy, growing, thriving relationships with Jesus. I think it allows the grace in the relationship and yet the challenging to be something more than the growth of the relationship, the grace and the growth of the relationship. Just for all of us, if you are, if you are single, it's, it's, like I said, it's, it's the misnomer that to be married is to, be, to, have, to have company. <laughs> you know, long till death you part company. But I would encourage you to maybe even develop some friendships uh, that complement you well. This sounds kind of weird in our world right now, right? Have an intimate friendship. We're going to talk about this next week, but this intimate friendship, yeah, and, and a friendship that complements you well. And by the way, when I talk about complements you how, it helps you bring about the will of God to the glory of God. Some of my greatest friendships, deepest friendships, most intimate friendships, are ones that I found in found ministry. We've worked together. We've, we've, we've sweat together. We've sacrificed together. We, we work in the trenches together. And we're working for what? For the will of God to the glory of God. And they complement me well, many of which are part of this community. And so, so if, if you're just waiting until marriage to find that, I say, you don't have to do that. You can find complementary relationships even outside of um, and, and before marriage. Now, once you are married, then she's the one or he's the one that compliments you in that way. So I'm not telling you to go outside of marriage. For those. <laughs> if you're married, uh, if, uh, if you're seriously dating, if you're seriously dating somebody, what I would say is these, these are actually some good questions, I think. If you're seriously dating, I, w- I would ask a question like, how do we complement each other well? In other words, where are we opposite? <laughs> uh, where, do we, where are we not the same? How do we complement each other well? What sort of advantages does that give us now? 
And what sort of uh, tension do you think that would create in the future? And I say seriously dating because it's a super awkward question on our first date. Right? Okay, so how do we compliment each other? Well? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. How about you just pay for dinner? And, and, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Um, if you are married, um, I, would, I, would, I would say some, some things, some, ask some questions for you, which is one you might ask, you, ask your spouse to say, where do you think we've been rivals? Where do you think we are doing this? We are competing with one another. And here's the crazy thing about that question, is it may not be something that you even are even aware of. You know, she may say something like, I just, I feel really competitive about our jobs. Like, you do, I don't. It's not where you feel competitive, it's about where she would feel competitive or he would feel competitive. Where do you feel in competition in our relationship? And just, it may be something that, 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 that you don't even know is on your radar, but they're saying, I, I compete, I, I just feel like you're smarter than me. And I always feel like, I'm, I want to be smarter. Or, I just feel like you're better than money than me. And I always feel like, I need better with money or better with my time or, or work harder. And let, let him or her let her confess that. And then you confess yours. And then also, where do you think that we are? We are good partners. Like, where do you think we are really kind of working together? We're coming together, we're working together. I think right here, like, that's good. So this, this idea of the rivalry and, the, the, and the, the, the partnership. The thing is that God has not called you to be alone. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. We're not called to be alone, but to be living in deep, intimate relationships. And some of those deepest, most intimate relationships are going to be marriages. But more than that, is that these deep, intimate relationships are going to be relationships that bring about the will of God to the glory of God. And all of those who help you in your life, whether they be friends or spouse, is that they're, 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 the help is not for your own agenda, your own glory, your own worth, anything like that. What it's for is, is to bring about the will of God to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not created us to be alone. We thank you that you have created, like in this, in this culture, community, us to belong to each other. And there's, there's a connection between the, the fact that we are moving increasingly towards isolation and dealing a lot more with depression in this world. You've not created us to be alone. You've created us to be partners. Partners with our friends, partners with our spouse. Not to be rivals. Competition destroys community. And so may we even be here as this community, may we compliment each other well, even as you talk about your church, complimenting itself well, being the body, not all our arms, not all our feet, not all our heads. And as we compliment each other well, not for our own individual glory, not even for your side's glory, but Jesus, to accomplish your will for your glory. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.